Hi, I'm your host, Michael Gilbo, here to let you know about a new and innovative theater major, the BA in Theater and Business Arts at the University of Providence. Get the education and experience you need as a theater artist and the business acumen to succeed in your career. Visit broadwaybullet.com and stay tuned to the end of the program for more info. Now, enjoy the show. Center, it sounds very huge and elevated, and that's what it feels like. Like once you're working there, because rent is about much more than just friendship, love, and musical theater. It was about something that shook musical theater. People are becoming more and more comfortable with, you know, issue of people being different. I mean, we do it all. I mean, you know, we don't we don't back away from anything. Welcome to Broadway Bullet Volume 206 for April 10th, 2008. I'm your host, Michael Gilbo, and we've got tons of great stuff here for you this week. We've got a sneak preview, the first ever official interview with uh, the producers for A Tale of Two Cities, and we're going to hear a couple songs from that as well. That is opening in August. Uh, we have also going to hear from the show's uh, Triumph of Love production going on here in New York and Queens, and Border Town. Also, Marty Cooper is back here this week to share with us his thoughts on a bunch of new shows that he's seen recently in On the Positive Side. So I'm not going to waste any more time. Let's jump into the program. Up close. All right. It's been buzzed about a lot recently, and the dates were just announced, I believe, about a, a week or two ago, that A Tale of Two Cities is indeed coming to Broadway. And we have got a great sneak peek into the show with the two producers, uh, creative producers, I might add, <laughs> uh, a dwindling breed in this thing. Ron Sharp and Barbara Russell are the lead production team behind A Tale of Two Cities. They're here to share some of the music from the show, some of their own music, and uh, a lot of other things. So how are the two of you doing? Great. Very well. <laughs> and very happy, I might add. All right, so uh, let's see, for our listeners, which one's Ron and which one's Barbara? <laughs> Ron has a slightly lower voice. <laughs> slightly. He's a tenor. <laughs> All right, now, I, one of the things we usually have to get out of the way is, uh, what is the Tale of Two Cities about? <laughs> <laughs> you have to come to see the show. <laughs> well, um, it's... Probably, arguably, you know, has some of the the greatest quotes of all time. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. And and then the famous line, it's a far, far better thing I do than I've ever done. It's a far, far better rest I go to than I've ever known. Um, Charles Dickens wrote the show back in the 1860s, or actually the book. um, And it it sold 250 million copies, so it was quite um, Harry Potter sold more. Barely. (laughs) (laughs) Actually, we did the research on it, and... uh, Individually, Harry Potter has not outsold The Tale of Two Cities single book, but as a series, it has sold just about as many. So I'm always curious when, uh, with production teams whether this was something you spearheaded. When, did you guys say, I want to do a musical of uh, Tale of Two Cities, let's find the people, or was this something that you were just searching around for material? Or How did, how did this come into being for you guys? Well, we really f- fell into it um, by accident. Um, I was performing as Jean Valjean in Les Miserables on Broadway, and I, I got asked to perform on a concept recording, and um, and I invited my wife to come as well. They invited Barbara, and we went and started singing on this concept album. And, and as an actor, you do a lot of readings of new works, and uh, this was just so far and a 
above anything that we'd ever worked on um, in readings or in recording sessions that it really grabbed us. Yeah, it was amazing. And it was a, you know, it's a tough decision to say, I'm going to produce this and do something we've never done before and take that leap into that. But after hearing the music, one song after another, it was, it was compelling. We had to do it. And, and I had been in the original production of uh, Disney's King David and the Civil War and the Scarlet Pimpernel. So I had started pieces and then brought them into Broadway as an actor. So I felt like I knew more than I actually did at the time. Uh, <laughs> Luckily, what it... we were naive enough to think that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's what one person said. You, you don't know how hard this is, so you'll probably be successful. <laughs> <laughs> it's very true. <laughs> how hard was it getting? I mean, you, had you done any major big-scale productions at all before this, or this was just kind of like, this has to be done? And... Well, no. We've, we This was the biggest thing we've ever done. <laughs> we did a lot. Actually, luckily, we did a lot of uh, small producing, um, albums. you know, albums, um, things like we had a recording studio. So we had some kind of knowledge as far as that goes. But this was this was a big, big venture. My wife is a little shy to say this, but when we were performing Les Miserables in Singapore, we opened the country of Singapore. And the prime minister and president came to see the show. They fell in love with her on stage. And <laughs> <My> so voice. <laughs> her voice, well, yeah, and she's, probably she's her. She's attractive, too. <laughs> and they asked, us, uh, they asked us if we could help them uh, with a couple new musicals that they were creating. They wanted to create more art in the country. And so they actually created two shows, Land of a Thousand Dreams and A River in Time. And we were the American producers on this. We actually, mm-hmm. you know, we did a lot of the recording for the show singing-wise, and we wrote a few of the songs. And uh, we ended up seeing the shows produced in uh, in Singapore. So we had gotten a little taste of that in the late 90s. Yeah, and that did help. It, it gave us a little experience about what it would be like. Little did we know. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're definitely going to get into some of that. But before we get to talking, why don't we maybe give our listeners a, a sneak peek at uh, some of the music from the show. Do you want to maybe set up this first song we're going to play here? Well, this is a great song, and it's sung by Natalie Toro, who's a wonderful Broadway actress. Um, In A Tale of Two Cities, I guess there's two stories going on. There's a story in London about a drunken attorney, and there's a story in Paris about a woman that wants revenge. And the woman's name is Madame Defarge. A lot of people say Lafarge, but it's Defarge. (laughs) And Madame Defarge basically, through uh, her past, has experienced such torment that her whole concept of life is to see everything and everyone and decide who's going to die when the revolution comes. And uh, throughout this whole show, she's been knitting, and what she knits is the names of people, not only the names, but the description of who they are and their family, so that when the revolution comes, they have a whole record of who should perish. Uh, So she has a lot of vengeance, and and at this point, what's happened is, uh, outside of her wine shop, a young child is run over by an aristocrat, And when the child is lying, dying on the ground, the aristocrat can only say, here's a gold coin for your troubles, and drives off. And this basically has driven the people to the point where now they haven't seen this coming, but the revolution is here. And it's called Out of Sight, Out of Mind. All right, let's take a listen. Out of sight, out of mind See the child of the street Never give them a thought How they live Where they sleep Grind them into the ground It's the kind thing to do Death is a welcome retreat From the sorrow Out of sight, out 
that strikes me is I'm not sure if I've really heard on Broadway music like this since so you know like the Les Mis uh, Miss Saigon Andrew Lloyd Webber kind of heyday of the kind of op- big pop operatic sound mm-hmm. of the late 90s w- why do you think that sound disappeared for a while from the Broadway stage well you know it's very expensive nowadays to produce a show with a large cast and a large orchestra and uh, you know unless you're Disney or DreamWorks or one of the larger producing companies you know, you really have to fight to to be able to maintain a budget that's as large as ours with a, such a, a, a large group of people. So these epic shows have kind of been replaced by the smaller productions where producers can get eight people on stage and make it look like 20 and, and create fun pieces of art. Um, even with the orchestra, you know, a lot of shows now can go on Broadway with a, with a small uh, ensemble of an orchestra, but when you're doing A Tale of Two Cities, you need many more people, so the fundraising is more difficult and and the whole idea of it becomes more about, for us, the art than it is about, you know, making a show that can recoup in six weeks or eight weeks. <laughs> is it going to recoup in six or eight weeks? <laughs> <laughs> you never know, you know. It would we, be nice. If we license enough <laughs> productions around the world, and, uh, you know, we have gotten calls already. We'll have to sell a lot of merchandise for that. <laughs> I mean, we, we've always embraced the idea. I mean, Les Mis and Phantom are two of our favorite shows of all yes. time. And they're completely sung through. Our show is actually a book musical. So if you were going to ask us to compare the story, I'd say it's more like A Christmas Carol or like Oliver. Or And My Fair Lady. The music is very similar to that. And our story with Dickens' characters is very colorful. The whole first act takes place in London, and there's a lot of wonderful Dickensian characters that uh, really draw you in, and you become a part of the family, you know, before the revolution begins. Now, the whole show, Book, Music, and Lyrics, is by Jill Santarello, right? Yes. Mm from the process of how how long have you been working on trying to get this going? We know that there's a lot of long <laughs> development and gestation periods. Uh, pretty much forever, right? <laughs> yeah, forever was the answer we thought on the way over. Since about 2000 when we, we first purchased the rights. So it's been a little over eight, eight and a half years. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
Now, what's it like working with an auteur who has every, you know, who's doing every piece of it? Did, did you guys work a lot together in, in shaping the show? Was mm-hmm. she receptive? Oh, how, did, how did that whole extremely, process work? Yeah. I actually feel that it works much better that way, whereas a lot of people in the beginning said, well, that might be difficult. You know, it's very difficult for one person to do everything. But because it's coming from one person, it was one voice, and it was so easy to shape each part of it and make it very cohesive. And we worked very well together. We can so. get quick answers when you only mm-hmm. have to talk to one creator. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> you know, it really and, – and for people that call us as the producers because we're married, you know, we're usually sitting next to each other, so you get a quick answer that way as well. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. We uh, eat, breathe, and sleep this show, so. Our children know the title of the show and Charles Dickens, and <laughs> they're only 5 and 12. <laughs> Now I'm I'm looking at the you know the credits for the show opens in August right Is August nineteenth right? August nineteenth yes. and I'm looking at the credits and recently there's been a trend where the producer pages are like six eight pages of the program <laughs> and I only see like a handful of names on on mm-hmm. here as, as producing so how was that pulled off with your being kind of new to the game how did you actually manage to kind of keep your control as producers and and put it together in more of an old school way. Well, we do. We do have a lot of investors, and uh, you know, we obviously. Yeah, but <laughs> any more pr- investors demand to have their name put above the title just for putting the money in the show. Right. Well, a lot of people. <laughs> right. It's 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 interesting because we we really reached you know out and spiderwebbed out in a lot of areas to find people to to come aboard the show. We did a lot of readings of our show. Yeah, we did more than most shows um, as fundraisers and. Uh, um, and a lot of people consider this a vanity investment, you know, and we, we look at it more as like a creative investment. So we have mm-hmm. a lot of people that have invested just because they love the show and want to be a part of it, not mm-hmm. not necessarily to have their name in lights. And I, I think what we were talking about before is that everyone above our title are true producers. They work at it. They do anything that they can add to, you know, moving this show forward, they do. It's it's a very uh, tight family. and. And they truly are producers. If yeah, their one, name's up there, they're working on the show. Absolutely, yeah. Some of them, one, one is ha- housing our set right now as we speak in his warehouse. One is creating, uh, who's a, in publishing, is creating a new book for us for A Tale of Two Cities that children can read, a little bit simpler book. One has factories in China. So we have a whole conglomerate of people that have all kind of really been involved and in our... Merchandising. We, have, yeah. we have board meetings. We, we run this like a, a true business. Yeah. Oh, a business? This is theater. What? What? This is theater. That's not the. That's not right. <laughs> we have a lot of fun too. But well, and that's you know, number one. We make sure that everybody involved has fun. How how big of a deal was it when you know working on trying to? Is the is the is the budget for the show public? Uh, I know a lot of times they are. Do you mind saying what it is or? Well, uh, I mean, it, it's in that fifteen million dollar range. I mean, yeah, I mean, yeah, it's a big musical. I, it's I a guess. Big, yeah. you know. How how hard was it with the fact that you hadn't done a big production before, that you hadn't, you know, done Sideline as associate producer on a million right. Broadway <laughs> shows? How hard was it getting the confidence of the investors that, that you were the team to work with? Well, I mean... Well, I, I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm not gonna lie. <laughs> I'm sure we could act of, like yeah. we like this isn't to you know Joe and Mary you yeah. know, who are touristing in. This is you know actual role theater nerds who are listening, and I'm, I'm sure they're dying to know. It this. was not easy. I, I I have to say that it's probably the hardest thing to raise money for is a Broadway show, and it, it shouldn't be. But that's the you know the mentality that's of, the mentality that people have out there when they hear about a Broadway show. What we had to do is is a little bit unique. Um, because we didn't have already formed a group of people that we knew that were wealthy enough to to bring $15 million forward, what we had to do is basically understand the industry 
and explain how the investment works to 185 of our investors. And uh, there was a lot of questions. And uh, so we had to educate ourselves. I mean, a lot of people that I've met along the way that have invested in other shows really don't have a clue how it works, how the recoupment works, how future production subsidiary rights and, and different aspects of the show work. They just do it because their friend does it. And we basically had to draw out and map and create charts that sh showed how shows worked and, and, and how the profit was distributed, you know, beyond just the documents. So it was, it was a very... Um, it was a very tough thing to do, but the quality of the piece was never in question. I, I, yeah, and like I said, it helps to have a really good show. <laughs> I mean, a show like Spring Awakening, which has gotten such wonderful reviews, that has always been a quality piece. I'm sure their biggest challenge was raising the money for the show. And yeah. people act like, well, well it's... Raise six or, <laughs> right, but even that, that's hard. But yeah. again, it's a good... When you have a good piece, you know, it, it eventually gets done, but not you have to work at it. And it doesn't the, come easy. And the funny thing is we didn't really realize that when we announced to Sarasota that you know, we would raise money without actually telling anybody we we're going to do a production anytime soon. That was the hardest part. <laughs> you know, we had raised almost $5 million before we even announced Sarasota. And then when we announced Sarasota, the next five came much quicker. A lot easier. Yeah. And as you announced Broadway, the, the final gap, gap that you close is, you know, it's minimal now. Yeah. So you guys, let's shift off for a moment and kind of into your personal history. The thing you guys, you're married, you work mm -hmm. together, business, everything. You met in Les Mis, is that yes. correct? Yes. So, yeah, I was playing Marius in the uh, the, the road show of Les Mis, and Barbara came in as Cosette, and mm -hmm. I said, "That's the next girl I get to kiss." She was in a red dress. <laughs> I remember that. And then one night on stage, she kissed me for real, and uh, the rest is history. He kissed me. No, no, she did. <laughs> I followed her off stage, actually. It's a true story. And I said, could you do that again? And uh, she kissed me again. I said, okay, I think I'm stuck. <laughs> and so, uh, obviously, you're, you're familiar with the process on being on stage and mm -hmm. really delving into the show. And also, I know you guys actually released a CD of yourselves, correct? The, yeah. the two of you singing, Sweethearts. I've got it here. Did you know I have it here? <laughs> uh, that's our publicist did that. <laughs> got to watch her. Well, this is a, a project that Barbara always, you know, really loved, uh, Jeanette McDonald, the Nelson Eddy music. And mm -hmm. so while we were doing Tale of Two Cities, we, we started working on this other show in this, the studio. And uh, I'm more of a baritone. I'm not a, a, a true... Uh, no, you're a tenor. Well, I guess I'm both. <laughs> But yeah, she, you know, we thought the songs would be easy to record and it would be easy to put this album together. But Jeanette McDonald and Nelson Eddy had incredible voices, mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, so it, it it was it's a wonderful project, and uh, we wanted to hear the music fully realized yeah. in stereo. Well, and, I always wanted to do this. I mean, for years, uh, my voice teacher Betty Ann Cluthy, um, who was a brilliant, uh, she's she's an amazing voice teacher. Well, this is her style of music, so she. You know, she really gave me this love of this music, and I said, "Well, I have to find a Nelson Eddy. Where am I going to find a Nelson Eddy?" And then, of course, I met Ron and found my Nelson Eddy. And uh, and we worked hard. I mean, we did all the orchestrations for the show and and worked, you know, about two years on the album as well. And uh, you know, it's just a great thing to have in the future to show our kids and say, "Hey, we we do sing," because our kids don't think we're that cool. You know, we're not <laughs> we're not on American Idol. So even though we sing well, does they... Nelson Eddy and Jeanette McDonald constitute cool? <laughs> 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 Well, to people in their eighties, maybe <laughs> people who truly appreciate great artists yeah, will appreciate them. There's a group out there. I'm that not saying like, they're not good, but I don't know. Cool is the you know ARP. ARP has been very, very kind to us. <laughs> the ARP review was yeah, amazing. That's true. They liked it. <laughs> 
So um, maybe we could play well, one of the duets from from the album. You want to mm-hmm. talk about this song we're going to play here? Yeah, this is the song Wanting You, which is one of their big opening numbers. Uh, mm, it's that, the first one on our album. That they've performed a lot. And I mean, they just have such a great repertoire of songs, you know, the Sigmund Romberg songs, the Oscar Hammerstein songs. And, you know, it, it's such great music. I mean, in some ways, you know, that is Broadway, you know, those type of songs. That was the start of Broadway. It's the golden age. And, uh, and we've always been attracted to bigger-than-life music and bigger-than-life stories, and so it's kind of fit the mold of what we enjoy doing. Mm-hmm. All right, well, let's take a listen. Thanks. In this world you are all and I Very good. Very good. Well, he is a true baritone. I'm, I am a tenor. You're right, Bart. <laughs> but I let him do it anyway. <laughs> uh, one thing I'd like to talk about Tale of Two Cities is you had a very successful uh, pre-Broadway engagement, like you said, in Sarasota, um, which was, I don't believe there's been a, you know, a tryout pre-Broadway, because it was announced as a pre-Broadway tryout. It wasn't mm-hmm. just like a production that got moved. 
there hasn't been one there, and I'm kind of curious what your thought process was behind bringing it to Florida first. Well, the the one difficult thing about a theater like um, uh, the Oslo is that it's a repertory theater, so they hire their cast for the whole season. So most shows that go down there are using the actors that they hired, and the only way we could really make this work was to um, put our show before their season. And so that was one of the interesting things that we figured out, which I don't think anyone else has figured out. Um, and one of the one of the problems with that is that because Sarasota, the town fills up during the winter, uh, we were actually putting the show up before most of the, the snowbirds, as we call them, come down to Sarasota. So we had much less population. But the capabilities of the Sarasota and the Oslo Theater is unbelievable. They have a shop that's... Amazing. I mean, they, they built the whole set there for Broadway. Our, our basically 95% of our set was built in Sarasota, yeah. which saved us on a lot of money because the labor costs the, the theater picked up. And, and uh, their construction is Broadway quality. Oh, it's unbelievable. So it's it, the, it was just a great deal all around. Michael Donald Edwards uh, brought us down. Uh, showed us the theater and mentioned this. And, you know, of course, right away everyone says, well, Florida, no, it's never been yeah. out of town there. Why would we go to Florida? But the minute we stepped in their theater, it was, we were, so we have to go here. It's a gorgeous <laughs> it theater. It's amazing. And they're tied to the Ringling Museum, which is a beautiful oh, museum, and, yeah. and they're part of Florida State University. So a lot of the acting conservatory students were in the show, you know, basically free labor for us and great experience for them. And talented. <laughs> Talented labor. <laughs> they were great. And the other great thing is through our, um, we did a lot of surveys of the of the people in the house, and one of the questions we knew we were going to be asked when we came back to New York is, well, you sold out the show, everyone jumped to their feet. They're not New York savvy. So one of the questions on our survey was, you know, have you lived in the New York area? Have you seen a Broadway show in the last year? And 98% of the people that were in that town were from the New York area and, and had seen a Broadway several show. several shows, yeah. Mm-hmm. And so. so we thought the surveys were pretty adequate yeah, to... Uh, they're a very intelligent audience. Yeah. So we felt very very happy transferable with that. Yeah. to the New York media. Were there any were there any things you learned from the production that you needed to change a little bit, or oh, what, yeah. what were some of the things that you found out that you that the production gave you in terms of not just the the hype and building it up to get it here, but also from a creative standpoint, what lessons did you learn from the production in Florida? Well, I think that you know what, there's many. I mean, anytime you do an out of town, I mean, when you can go and do your out of town, and there's not major changes you have to make. You know you're doing something right, but there's always going to be little things, uh, you know, little blocking things. Cut a song here, add a song here, um, you know, but nothing. One of, well, one of the biggest questions with with any new show is the set. You know, here we were building a giant set. I mean, it's one of the largest sets. I mean, it's it's bigger than the barricades of Les Mis. I mean, it's a giant set that revolves and moves and does all these wonderful things. And Tony Walton, who's the legendary Tony Walton, who designed our set, he first showed us in a little box. Here is your set. And Barbara and I looked at it and said... It looks amazing, but how does how is that going to look on the stage? We, we couldn't... He's just amazing. He can just... He, you have to see it on the stage. <laughs> and when he put it on the stage, everybody's mouth... Just, their jaws just dropped. It was beautiful. It was and a great opportunity to yeah. see that it, that it could work. And, well, and he was smart enough to... You know, he told us, well, it's a smaller stage down there, um, but not, you know, not very small, but it wasn't going to uh, fit on our Broadway stage. So he said, let's build it to fit on a Broadway stage. And so we could just take the set and move it right to Broadway when we need to. Yeah. And it worked. Yeah, they have a great supportive staff there at the Oslo. And uh, and Vic Merson worked at the Public Theater here in New York, so they're very New York savvy. And, you know, it was really an amazing. We saved a lot of money uh, on, on the set design being built there and, and doing most of the construction. And a lot of the costumes, too, were, yeah. were built for Sarasota. I mean, their proscenium is 10 feet 
smaller than most Broadway houses, but they their backstage area was dynamic Huge. and yeah. you know there's not a lot of space for actors in dressing rooms on Broadway, but at the Oslo it was <laughs> like great. cavernous how much space we had. All right. So when you do these out of town tryouts, how much of a, a money drain is on the budget, or do a lot of the tryouts? I mean, I'm, I'm assuming it's definitely a lot cheaper to put on a production in you know Sarasota than in New York. But I have always been curious how these out of town tryouts work financially. Do they? How much is to raise money? Do they? How much do they cost to put up? How much do they kind of recoup on their own? I mean, yours is obviously a different story than everybody else's, but I, I guess I'm just interested in how that worked in your case. Well, for us, we didn't want to risk trying to raise money on another production, so we kept raising money mm. throughout the process. So when we went to Sarasota, the, the show was you know ninety five percent funded yeah. for Broadway. Uh, you know, we didn't have a large group of Broadway insider producers that we could bring down to invest, and uh, so we we just kept doing what we had to do and put on a great show. and uh, And Judy Jacksina, our incredible publicist, has been terrific in creating. You know, they're showing people what we've created down there with the She photos. hates her name getting checked, you know. She hates it. <laughs> well, she's been unbelievable. <laughs> well, we talk about her all the time because she's <laughs> she's amazing. And she, you know, a lot of, when we were starting out, I mean, she was showing us how to do this. I mean, I remember we had a list of invite people to invite, and I said, well, which 500 do we pick? And she said, do not play God with this list. Yeah, you how send dare an invitation. you play God? You sent an invitation to everybody, and that meant staying up till 4 in the morning. <laughs> And she was with me until four in the morning and Barbara and, uh, you know, licking stamps and sending out thousands and thousands and thousands of CDs and packages to people to to engage them to come see the show. And uh, and the rest is history at this point. <laughs> oh, I guess history's yet to be written. But <laughs> but financially, how does the out of tryouts work? I mean, without divulging too much, do, do the ticket sales in Sarasota pretty much offset the cost of doing it there? Or do the company put it up? I mean, did this come out of the Broadway budget? To, you know, as well, there's, there's, two, there's you know, two different types of out-of-towns. One is a, a regional theater out-of-town where it's enhanced by the theater, and then there's one that's a four-wall, four like going to Chicago or San Francisco where you're footing the whole bill. And in each case, the producer should go into it expecting to lose two to four million dollars, knowing that you're going to put the show up, you're going to find out whether it works, whether your designs are working, and then you decide whether to make the next step to Broadway. In our case, it was a regional theater tryout, um, and there was a lot of costs that were paid for by the Oslo, mainly in labor. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. A lot of the construction down there. I mean, we built our set for probably half of what it would normally cost because the labor was paid for by the theater. I mean, ultimately, it was a little bit over $2 million, the production in total. Um, and, and then the proceeds are shared between the theater and uh, the writer and the producers. But we, we went into it knowing that it was going to be basically a loss to see where we're at. Yeah, the, the, I just I've, I just kind of always wondered how those yeah. tended to work in the financial scheme of things, <laughs> in those those big fifteen million dollar budgets that you have to raise. <laughs> no, it's it's all part of it. You know, a lot of shows go out of town, and some come in, and some don't. You know, and you really can can test the waters, and uh, so you expect to make an investment of two million dollars or more. And the, the the concept recording, you know, a lot of bigger shows don't even get to the recording stage until months after it hits Broadway. I'm just kind of, I'm assuming <laughs> that this was done because you were newer into the field and you needed to get your product mm -hmm. shown to get it going. So kind of what was the story about how you put together the concept recording for this? Because it's a pretty big show to do a, a concept of. <laughs> <level. laughs> yeah. Well, that was our first, you know, touching of the show was, was asked, we were being asked to sing in, uh, on the album. And they had had about seven songs completed, and uh, so not not this album, not the concept. Album. They were recording. Uh, Jill, the author, was recording songs, 
And then when we, you know, took over producing it, that's when we said we have to make a some kind of concept album, in a sense, a cast album. Um, as a co- it's really a calling card because, again, we were new at this, so we didn't have that. We couldn't just walk in and say, we have a show, you know, here it is with nothing to show for it. Yeah, so we, we had, had to, to do it a little differently. We had to prove ourselves on every step. And, and the songs that Jill had kind of put together were mo- mainly the big songs. It wasn't any of the humor of the show. And as we read the mm-hmm. script the first mm-hmm. time, we said, this show is really funny. I mean, this show, you'll be laughing out loud 50 times in the first act. It, we really build up the, the humor of these characters and, and, and the colorfulness of these characters, and none of that was being displayed with the album. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So we said, you know, let's take some of these fun songs, the up-tempo fun songs, and show people what the show really is. I mean, it has evolved from the album, obviously. That was done almost six yeah. years ago. But uh, at the same time, it was a great calling card to show the quality of work that we, we thought that we could create with the, the production as well as, you know, with the music. And... and this is a pretty big. I'm curious. Did you get together a full orchestra of whether? Rec- I mean, because it sounds pretty full. The the recording. I mean, it sounds pretty live. It's it's uh, it's yeah. it's half and half. You yeah, know. It's, yeah, that's always a good way to get that live sound is to right. enhance it with a little bit of live mm-hmm. instruments and then back it up with a little bit of samples. Right. Yes, and and that we, was our orchestrator. Uh, yeah, our Ed orchestrator Kessel. Ed Kessel. Um, I spent many nights <laughs> at his house in Springfield, New Jersey, at Sound Imagination, uh, working on this. Um, we just really wanted to create a calling card for the show to show the quality. I mean, we've always felt like this show, you know, I don't want to say look of the leader, but that's what our marketing people always say. We always felt like we wanted to show that we could do quality work. Well, so, it, it, it made a difference. It, it truly did. It really helped get our show out there. And as far as raising money, it's a great piece to be able to hear something and before you invest your money. Yeah. Even the design and the artwork, too, you know, we, we painstakingly went through ideas with this. And, uh, you know, it was always, you know, again, about trying to make, you know, quality production. All right. Well, let's take a listen to one more song from your uh, concept recording. Uh, you want to tell us about this one? Well, this is the rousing anthem, the end of the second act. And uh, as everybody's life comes crashing in together, as we've seen second in many act shows. Second act first act? I'm sorry, first act. You're right. <laughs> sorry. It's the second act of this program, right? <laughs> um, but as everyone's life comes crashing together, I mean, we see that like with West Side Story where they do the quintet and they all come together and we all see where everyone stands. Um, this, is, this is our big anthem called Until Tomorrow. Remember how long we've been waiting, we've been praying for this day. Until tomorrow is upon us, will you follow me today? Look in your hearts and find a soldier, there's no time to be afraid. Until tomorrow is upon us, will you follow me today? We've lived a lifetime in a country we could never call our own. Once we all must stand together, or we'll surely fall alone. Look in the faces of your children, and you cannot turn away. Tomorrow's dawning, can you see it? The future's ours if we can free it. It won't be long until tomorrow is today. The time is upon us, we fight now or never. We're lighting a fire, they Remember forever, we go to the Bastille, the Temple of Terror. We'll swing the gates open, we'll lead them to freedom, we'll show them the way. For years a wind 
was softly blowing, softly building to a force. For years the storm was slowly growing, now they cannot change the course. Look in your hearts and find a soldier, there's no time to be afraid. Tomorrow's dawning, can you see it? The future's ours if we can free it. It won't be long, it won't be long, it won't be long. Until tomorrow, until tomorrow, until tomorrow. And despite the fact that somebody on Amazon is trying to sell a single copy of this for $165. (laughs) Not us. (laughs) The the concert recording is available for sale from your site, right? Yes, I have about 1,000 in my garage, so if anyone's willing to pay $160, they can come to my garage. (laughs) 1,000, these will be collector's items in in just a few months. Yes, (laughs) exactly. So um, what's the website for that they can go to to... It's, uh, it's tailmusical.com, and tail is spelled T-A-L-E, tailmusical.com. And that, that has all the reviews and a lot of photos and sound clips, and you mm-hmm. can order the CD as well there. It's, it's been great. I mean, there's probably been a, a couple thousand CDs that have gone out the door, uh, you know, and basically they're marketing tools for us. Uh, and and, I, and it's, it's just been a, a wonderful gift to have, have that CD to be a part of the show early before we even begin. So uh, we talked about the set designer and talked about Jill Santorello. Who's your director for for the production here? Well, the director is Warren Carlyle, and uh, he was our choreographer in uh, Sarasota. And there's so much movement to the show and moving of the masses. And he was just so brilliant at seeing the set move and the cast move and the story moving. Uh, you know, Tony Walton said to us at one time, you know, there's only a few... Uh, people out there that could move this type of show, and, and Warren Carlyle's one of them, and uh, he was so right. Uh, mm-hmm. And he's just exceptionally talented man. All right, so uh, August 17th, you said? is the August 19th. August uh, 19th, okay. Is when the revolution begins, is, as is we that, say. Is that previews <laughs> or is that opening? That's previews. previews. And then the opening is September 18th. All right, and uh, any chance you think we might be able to get to talk to some of the other people involved with the show as it gets closer? Yes, to absolutely. Judy's nodding her head. Yes, so there will be many. Judy is relentless. We are, you know, we we have a big, uh, big uh, revolution. So you can <laughs> get as many people as you need. Yeah, I mean, we really feel that you know we're excited to have this opportunity, and you know, it's it's hard for any show to make it to Broadway, and uh, and. And we're just so so thrilled to have this opportunity. Oh, we want yes. to thank Jordan Roth at the Jujamsons too for for believing in us and trusting us, and uh, and we're going to do our best to make the show a huge success for them. Well, I have to say, it's definitely nice to see some new creative producing blood, you know, you know, coming onto the scene in a big way. So definitely, congratulations on on all your hard work getting this together, and I wish you the best of luck when it opens to uh, hopefully glorious reviews here. <laughs> well, thank, thank you so you. much. Okay, thanks so much. So Ron Sharp, Barbara Russell, and the website again was tailmusical.com, and thanks so much for stopping by. Thank you. 
the call board. All right, quick notice. If you or someone you know in New York is looking to do some recording, I have a great recording studio here in Times Square. My rates are reasonable. Uh, you can just give me a buzz to discuss your project at 646-345-3433. Or you can email me at mgilbo, that's M-G-I-L-B-O-E, at broadwaybullet.com. All right, first up on the call board, Broadway Bears has announced its theme for the 2008 performance. Wonderland, a take on Alice in Wonderland, now has a promo video online featuring Mary Birdsong. The show's Alice, as well as chisel-bodied stars of Broadway playing the Mad Hatter, March Hare, and the Caterpillar. Broadway Bears is a benefit performance that will play two performances at the Roseland Ballroom on June 22, 2008. For information and tickets, please visit www.broadwaycares.org. All right, next up, and you got to catch this fast, uh, Brian Stokes Mitchell and Marin Maisie will be performing a free concert at the New York Public Library for the Performing Arts on Thursday, April 10th, 2008. The performance is part of a night celebrating Lynn Ahrens and Stephen Flaherty with the composer-lyricist duo discussing their body of work. The performance is on a first-come, first-seat basis and is free of charge. Then, Passing Strange is being recorded by Ghostlight Records as a live cast album. On April 14, 2008, at the Blasco Theater, a unique recording for a cast album will happen in front of a live theater audience. Composer Lyricist Stu is excited about the process, saying, quote, Heidi Rodewald and I have always tried to bring the spontaneity of live performance into our studio recordings, but now through the magic of theater, the studio is coming to the Belasco, end quote. For more information and tickets, please visit www.passingstrangeonbroadway.com. And the call board is being sponsored by Roy Aria Studios, located at 43rd and 8th, hey, in the same building as us, in the heart of the theater district. They've got tons of great rehearsal spaces, performance venues at a great price, and they've got a staff who has been involved in all aspects of production and truly knows how to help out however you might need it. The spaces are equity approved and they're easily accessible by Port Authority, Penn Station, and all subways. Feel free to give them a call at 212-957-8358 or send an email to bookings at Roy Arias Studios for any inquiry or to view the spaces. On the boards. All right, in a remote and rundown place, fate brings nine disparate characters together as a tornado thunders in. Sounds like it could be a, a gathering in an off-off-Broadway production. <laughs> and it will be, all in many different ways, Border Town by, uh, by Steve Ives, the playwright, and the director is Tom Berger. Hi. Is it Berger or Berger? Berger. Okay, good. It's Berger. It's Berger, yes. <laughs> How are you guys doing? Delightful, Michael. Thanks for having us. Thank you, Michael. So, uh, first off, you can tell us a little bit about Border Town, and, and sorry about the off-off Broadway play. No, it's, okay. oh, it's absolutely fine. No, we can smell our own. It's all right. Um, it's a it's a deceptively difficult show to synopsize, uh, but uh, the synopsis actually reminds me of William Ng. Yeah, the synopsis yeah. seems to be very inspired by uh, Bus Stop. Yeah, I mean, the, yeah, it's always got a Billing esque ring to it. The thing is. Uh, we meet this amazing motley of characters from gamblers to waitresses to gangsters to criminals to murderers to possibly God. We never actually find that out. Um, uh, who all end up coming together in sort of, pun completely intended, a perfect storm uh, in a hostage situation in a diner where because of an impending tornado are not able to leave. Um, uh, Steve sort of based it in sort of a combination of the Book of Job and the Canterbury Tales, and everybody sort of has a moment where we discover how they came to be there in their background. I also tried to throw in the Wizard of Oz. 
And he, he tried to throw him in. Yeah, but, he, he refused. Um, He's like, yeah. no, the big head won't Equi- go in. Equity wasn't having it. Yeah, no. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, but it's, it's a really it's a it's a fun. It's smart. It's incredibly funny. It's poignant in many places, and uh, we're really we're really excited to remount it. And uh, this is, you know, to all the struggling playwrights out there, to remember to struggle, work hard, write a hundred plays, and eventually it pays off. Because um, Steve has written, how many plays have you written now? Uh, that would be one. <laughs> that would okay. be, this is the one. Scratch I'm, that. I'm, I'm working on another one. <laughs> and I, and I'm, yeah. I'm just about done with it. But this one, uh, this one, it's, it's, it's sort of like a child to me. I actually started writing it on a dare. How many playwrights have been standing sniper on the top of buildings? Um, <laughs> oh, actually, I, I, I have all sorts of snipers. It's hard to pick out the, you know, the playwright snipers from the just, you know, the regular random ones, too. snipers that are after me. On Angry husbands, basis. things like that. <laughs> Debt collectors. Um, yeah, I was gonna say, you know, for most playwrights, work so hard to get one play produced. You've had you've had yours produced twice now. So I, I have had it produced twice, but both times by uh, by Tom, who's actually a very excellent producer as well as an excellent director. And also an excellent sniper. Just when, you know, when Steve doesn't let me make changes, <laughs> I, I never go. I never aim for him, but I aim for the, aim for the ground at his feet, so he knows that I'm. He, he's not quite him. on the sniper scale with Dick Cheney, but he's close. We're we're wandering, Steve. Oh. <laughs> okay, so we're gonna we're gonna do two stories. First, Steve, since this is your first play, right? What made you decide to enter the remarkably lucrative world of playwriting? <laughs> 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 um, basically, what happened was I, I, I wrote the play and I gave it to a friend of mine who is in theater, and she passed it around to people that she knows that have produced off-off Broadway shows, and uh, 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 pretty much all of them that read it wanted to do it. So I figured I had something good on my hands. And uh, but when I talked to the directors, none of them really uh, agreed with my artistic vision of where I was going with it. I had a friend who was uh, involved with Tom's company, Redirections, and she passed the play on to Tom. Tom liked the play. I met with Tom. I really liked Tom, and and then we uh, um, and I submitted it to a uh, festival, the Manhattan Repertory Winterfest 2007, and they accepted Six. it. No, seven. You're right. Yes. Time flies when you're having fun, Tom. Mm-hmm. And yeah, 2007, and Tom uh, and Tom produced the play and directed the play for that, and it went over really well. Manhattan Repertory Theater, uh, you know, we were pretty much the showcase play of the, of the festival. They liked it a lot, they liked us a lot, and then we decided to produce it again, and which is why we're doing it now. But what made you go a play to write even in the first place? Was it the babes, the money, the, the fame, <laughs> the, hookers the fortune? The glamour, yeah. the glamour. <laughs> no, really, uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm sort of a jack-of-all-trades writer. I, I've done all sorts of things in writing. I, I've, I, I've done work uh, last year for DC Comics, writing comic books. I've done work for uh, I've done work with uh, Jody Pico, the author. I've co-written a couple of screenplays. I get it. So this was like I've already done the haiku. Well, I've done the Dada piece. It was on a dare. What new is it? <laughs> oh, a play. Okay, that's quaint. <laughs> uh, a friend of mine was just basically uh, telling me that you should write a play because uh, she was a very good friend of mine and she and she wanted uh, and she was in theater. So, so she's like. You should write. Uh, you know, you should get involved in theater. So basically, what I did was I actually picked up um, Samuel Beckett, Waiting for Godot, and The Glass Menagerie just to see what the format was. I read them both. 
and uh, and because they go you, together like if you just those pick two, two like more acclaimed plays, <laughs> maybe. <laughs> well, <laughs> no, they were they were the the nearest things on the shelf to me that night, and I read them both, and and I figured you know hey I can do this, and I, I like a challenge because I, I was familiar with uh, screenplays, I was familiar with journalism, I was familiar with like I said comic books. You know, I tried writing a screenplay after watching Attack of the Killer Tomatoes and <laughs> Legally Blonde two. <laughs> Didn't come out quite right. <laughs> uh, I, <laughs> actually, uh, the next play I'm writing is is, is actually Attack of the Killer Zucchini. <laughs> so, <laughs> but uh, no, to answer your question, uh, uh, yeah, I do like theater, and I, I have uh, my mother used to bring me to theater a lot when I was small, and I sort of just lost touch with it. And, and, and I so did realized... you enjoy the show last night? <laughs> I, I, I did not actually. Sorry, but, <laughs> I'm giving you way you got too much me. Hell this yeah, but no, no. What I can say is that this, uh, th- this is what I love about theater. Having seen theater and having done theater in a festival, what I, what I found I love about theater is it to me is the rock and roll of the performing arts in a sense that that you're right there and the actors are right there and you see the audience reaction. And when the show is good, there's an electricity in a room that you feel that I, I think is incomparable in any other art form. It's just like a, a beautiful thing to be a part of. And, uh, and, and I really enjoy it, and I, I look forward to doing it again. Isn't rock and roll a performing art? <laughs> just tossing out there. Sorry, go ahead. Well, you know, interesting statistic, though. You know, everyone keeps picking on the playwright. Like that, this, it's a cruel, cruel I'm, world. I'm going to stop picking on, I'm gonna stop <laughs> picking on the playwright. But I, I have found an interesting statistic that with, you know, CD receipts falling and movie-gate admissions falling and stuff and everybody's blaming kind of the Internet and stuff, live receipts across all live fields, theater, you know, sporting events, uh, concerts, everything, live events are on the upswing. And I think it's because of what I just said, because yeah. there's an electricity that you can feel. Like, people will do anything to feel, you know, alive. And, and you know, from bungee jumping to, to going to see a rock show or going to see a play, there's that, that, that electricity that courses through you. And I think that's, that's the beauty of experiencing art face-to-face as opposed to on tape. Yeah, and you have the, the crowd around you. So, Tom, what, what drew you, I mean, you kind of heard the story, but what actually drew you into this into this bidding war play. Right. Well, we, <clears throat> Steve and I both have very similar tastes in dialogue. We both are fans of everything from, like, Vonnegut to Aaron Sorkin to, like, you know, that kind of just really conversational, not dumbed-down kind of dialogue. And um, we at Redirections were very big on, uh, especially in the indie theater scene, it's so hard to find, you know, theater as a parable and not as a pamphlet. We don't want to say, this is who we, this is what we believe in you should, too. We wouldn't say... Let's tell you a story, and you figure it out from there. And um, Border Town is really parable. It really is, in a lot of ways, a passion play, and it's kind of fun to. And like I said, it is. <clears throat> it contains a couple of the funniest scenes I've ever staged in my career, uh, and it's very snappy. It doesn't, you know, it doesn't pull any punches intellectually, which is really great. Um, and it was really good for us with the Manhattan Rep production. We, uh, when we formed, we made an explicit sort of agreement with each other that not to be like everybody else who does is scrape together 1200 bucks to do a play nobody's ever heard of and disappear. And we were taking our time and meeting and going through the books and going through fundraising and going through all these things. And um, when the man, when the Border Town production, co-production with Manhattan Rep raised its head, we said, this is a good test drive for us. This is a good way for us to function as a company and sort of put something on its feet together and to see how it goes. And it went well. So uh, how long has Redirections been 
in place now? Give or take um, about a year and a half. We met doing, uh, our associate artistic director, Aaron Smiley, was directing a uh, a mediocre but not awful little play (laughs) for a company that will remain nameless. Uh, But uh, we all sort of came together uh, she asked me, she tapped me to just to play a small role. I very rarely act. I try to get on stage every couple of years because I think it's good for us, for directors to do so. But um, met and we had a really uh, great time working together. And then at the, you know, we were having a party and we were, and our costume designer was doing like a fringe show and I was doing a nymph show. And we were convention about festivals and how the way they're run are like destroying the industry. And we were like just complaining about resources and too many shows produced. And it led to this like Dr. King-esque rant about what we would want to change in the industry. And we were just kind of like, want to start a theater company? And we're like, yeah. And um, we met, we just started talking about ideas, started reading plays, talking about the kind of stories we wanted to tell and um, have done okay. And then after Bordertown, produced Edward II, uh, produced uh, uh, the first production of Joseph Schmidt Celebration since 1968 and are redirecting Bordertown. Redirecting... From redirections. I need to stop using that joke. Nobody really thinks it's as funny as I do. <laughs> <laughs> I apologize. So, Steve, actually, um, I shouldn't be giving you too much crap. He's the first playwright we've had on in a while. I don't know why. <laughs> I have the hardest time getting playwrights on here. It's like they're like, no, I don't want to go on. and uh, An artist. I, I like writing on the page, not on the thing. So um, what are some of the techniques you use? Like um, Tom mentioned that the dialogue is very you know, fast-paced and, and crisp and stuff. Do you have any things as just, you know, as a writer that you use to uh, test your dialogue? Do you actually use people or do you kind of test that yourself? Or how do you know when you've got the dialogue sitting in the right pocket? I, I, I listen a lot. And and I, I have the ability, I don't know if everybody has it because um, I'm not in their heads, but I, I hear it in my head as I write it. I hear the conversation and I write it. And I'll, I'll get lost in like almost like, uh, I guess there's runner's high uh, and and you don't feel tired when you're running. It's sort of like that. You're it's writer's high. Like when I'm when I'm really cooking, I'll uh, I'll, I'll just hear it all in my head, and and then I'm just writing it out. And then uh, then I'll look at it, you know, the next day. And sometimes you know there'll be things I can fix or things that are extemporaneous or whatever. But like when it's when it's going good, uh, I'll just look at it and be like, wow, that sounds really good. But um, there, there there's no special techniques I have. I, I'd say the only special uh, technique that I can offer anybody is, is is when it's not going good like that because I think every writer has times when it is going good but when it's not you, you really got to force yourself to do something because uh, discipline is a, is a big thing in writing and, uh, and people who get discouraged because you're not always going to have a good day are, are going to find it easy to procrastinate and not write and, uh, and just the further you get away from a project the, 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 the harder it gets to complete it I don't write. That's why I don't write. <laughs> yeah, you know, my because my experience was quite reverse. I thought it was all brilliant in my head when I was writing it, albeit I was just writing a rough, <laughs> a rough sketch for like, for like my actual book writer to be able to string together, mm. you know, the musical. But I was like, this rough sketch is so great. This is all gonna stay. <laughs> then I read it with her, and I was like, am I am I Doctor Seuss meets Mister Rogers? <laughs> <laughs> So well, when I'm when, when the thing about dialogue <laughs> is this: you got to listen to people because people are interesting. But I mean, you also have to sort of exaggerate what's already out there because um, when people talk, you know, they use a lot of you know like and um and and you know they they don't really say everything. A lot of people they talk around what they're saying, but um, 
you know, you if, if you listen to what, how people talk and you pick out sort of the colorful parts and you sort of exaggerate them and then you sort of like dim down the parts that are a little more boring, I think that's where good uh, uh, fictional dialogue comes out. One thing I really like about Steve's writing, too, to piggyback on that, is that it it doesn't feel like a play all the time. You know, I mean, he doesn't write like a playwright. And, you know, we, we were joking about Godot and Menagerie going together. <laughs> like, there's a wacky sitcom in there somewhere, I think. But uh, very much that we do... We I've read so many bad plays, and people send me bad plays all the time, and you'd be astounded at how many bad plays there are out there. Because I feel like a lot of playwrights are felt locked I'm not this astounded play. by how many <laughs> plays there are out there. And he says, bad play, bad play. Yeah. I've been doing this a long time, and I was astounded at how many bad plays we got. Um, but one thing that was really powerful to me is that it just it does flow like dialogue, but it is smart enough and in parts inane enough and in parts sacrilegious enough or sacrilegious I, I always say sacrilegious um, yeah I love that word Fergalicious and, uh, that's the name of Tom's next rock band is sacrilegious no a friend said whenever I direct a religious show whenever I've done like religious musicals he says doing shows with me is sacrilegious but uh, but yeah, I mean, because it it doesn't it doesn't read like a play, but then it can play like a play, which is I think a, a unique a unique skill. All right. So, uh, who are some of the actors involved with this? And, and... Oh, we have a great, 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 great cast. Um, a, a couple of uh, returning members from the original cast: Carrie Height, Casey Williams. Um, we have a couple of other people who have done some work with us. Um, Nick Fondulis, who is our guy with Stan and Edward II, has returned. Um, have a great guy named T.D. White, uh, Andrew Schechter, uh, Marta, how do you pronounce Marta's last name? Kirsten. Kirsten. Marta Kirsten. Um, who am, I, am I missing anyone? Uh, you're definitely missing someone. And some other people and that so are we, really we, important. Uh, Michael we'll Bertolini. find out how many people we Michael Bertolini, <laughs> Claro de, la, de los Rios, and... Did we say Carrie? Yeah, I said Carrie. Carrie Height. Okay. <laughs> Good. We just mentioned him again. He'll be happy. And some other people. And some other people. But, uh, <laughs> no, that's about it. Uh, but there, we had 800 submissions for the show. Um, we saw about 100 over the course of two days, and then I ended up using mostly people I knew anyway, which was annoying. But um, it was well, we fine. Cast, we, we actually cast the show the most professional way like possible, which was over a lot of beer. Yes. <laughs> yes. And I, I found at the beginning of it, when we were on our first and second beer, it was very difficult to cast. But like after we got through a six pack and a couple of shots of then whiskey, they all started getting. Yeah. Amazing. Then, then the cast came was together. great. We loved it. After <laughs> it that. Just it came together. together. This was my first time casting a play, and I just figured, you know, the alcohol is a big key factor. I have a friend of mine who is a music director works with me a lot. The first time we had a phone conversation, we had to meet about the show, and I said, "You like you like wings?" He's like, "Yeah." He's like, "I'm like, you like beer?" He's like, "Yeah." I'm like, "We're gonna get along fine. I'll meet, I'll meet you at this bar." So do you have a specific <clears throat> bar that inspires the... the um, well, uh, what's funny, we, we have four or five bartenders associated <laughs> with this show. Um, half the cast are bartenders. T.D. White's a bartender I found out last night at that great burger place downtown. <laughs> um, but uh, uh, Casey Williams, who's one of our founding artists, is a bartender, nice guy, Eddie, so we haunt there a lot. Uh, Marta bartends at Antarctica. Yeah. T.D.'s at... Uh, what's that? So something it's like Michael Kingsbaker also a bartender. Also a lot a bartender. of bartenders. A lot of bartenders. You know. Hmm. I've never heard of actors that bartend. That's, that's, that's sort of a weird <laughs> thing. Yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I, I imagine that. <laughs> All right. So Border Town opens on April twenty fourth. Mm-hmm. Runs till May eleventh. 
And where can people go to find out, like, you know, ticket information oh, and all that? absolutely go to buy tons and tons of tickets at uh, smarttix.com, and uh, they can find out more about it. At... Oh, the reverse psychology, I say. There's only a few tickets left. Oh, right. That's better, not, I know. I was just testing you, Michael. I was just testing you, seeing, seeing if you keep it keep that <laughs> with me. Um, and you can find out more about the company at redirectionstheater.com. All right, well, Which is surrounded by snipers right now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Be sure to wear flak armor if you're going to. And more are lining up after they hear this show. Yes. They're like, hey, gonna get it. <laughs> gonna get the, the up-and-comer who thinks he can just whippersnapper write one play. <laughs> get <it going> on. <laughs> I'm writing another play. I'm writing another play, and I hope to have Tom direct that as well, because like, like I said, I like theater a lot. Is it going to be like J.D. Salinger writing another book, or...? Um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I, I, was, I was thinking Ralph Ellison. <laughs> I never read The Invisible Man 2. He's back and he's pissed off. (laughs) All right, so Steve Ives and Tom Berger, thanks for joining us so much. Uh, Redirections.com, Bordertown, April 24th. Uh, Redirectionstheater.com. Redirectionstheater.com. SteveIves.com. Thank you you very much, Michael. Thank you, Michael. On the positive side. Hey, this is Marty Cooper once again back on the positive side after the winter of my discontent, going through a lot, had flu, had pneumonia, had everything happen to me, but I feel a lot better now, and fortunately I'll be back for a while. First time this week, my wife and I made it out to the theater. We saw a few things. I'm going to talk about them. Uh, last Thursday night, I saw, I saw a catered affair. It's a very pleasant little show. Uh, the acting is great. Faith Prince, uh, does some of her best work here. In fact, I remember seeing the movie and I remember one scene where, where Betty Davis broke down and cried hysterically, you know, towards the end of the story. And uh, we had a similar scene here. My only problem is I, I don't know what kind of life it's going to have. I don't know how many people are going to understand it. Uh, there's not a lot of music. Uh, John Bacchino did not write a big score. A lot of it is background and incidental music. One of the real bright things in the show is uh, Harvey Firestein. He makes it happen most of the time, either dramatically or in kind of a funny way. Uh, Harvey Firestein, yes, he does play an Irish uncle. And uh, the funny thing is when they're actually planning this big wedding uh, at the hall, uh, he leaves his character and he's, he's reading the prices and everything, what, what they'll have to do and, uh, and the like. And he says, uh, oh, let, let, me, let me look at this. My, my people really know how to work this. And it's kind of a funny little joke. Uh, but he gets downright dramatic at times, feeling he's the one that's being left behind, especially when they're planning the original plan, a small wedding, uh, leaving him out. He is great. Faith Prince is great. Actually, all the leads are great. But it's two hours and 40 minutes without an intermission. And if you sit in the balcony of the Walter Kerr Theater, your knees, if you have knees like mine, will not be there when you stand up again. Uh, It's very small space up there. And if you have any kind of weight on you, or uh, I don't have a lot, but... uh, any kind of weight on you, it'll be a hard time standing. But in any case, uh, the next night, I saw Sunday in the Park with George, and that is, that is totally sublime. The two leads are fantastic. 
I might say uh, Jenna Russell, who plays Dot and Anne Marie, actually might give Miss Lapone a run for her money. It is just beautiful to watch the staging with the projections is great. Small orchestra, but you don't need much. Had a great time. It's just a beautiful piece of theater. Uh, on Saturday night, I saw Crybaby. It's really stupid. Some of the lines are really stupid, but few things shine. Uh, Harriet Harris in the, in the Polly Bergen role, I don't know anyone who's seen the movie. Jim Snyder, who plays Crybaby. Elizabeth Stanley, who plays his girlfriend, kind of a uh, staid little girl, the granddaughter of, of Harriet Harris. But Rob Ashcroft has fashioned some great choreography, especially in the second act. I had a good time. I mean, stupid jokes. Uh, of course, Mr. Waters gets involved in 50s politics this time, in uh, bomb shelters and the like. The cast is fine. Very honestly, I think it'll be a good bridge and tunnel show. I think people will enjoy it. On Sunday was my second visit to Gypsy, and uh, I saw it last summer at Encores. I'm thinking that between Gypsy and I haven't seen South Pacific, I've seen Gypsy and I've seen Sunday in the Park. I'm thinking there are some great new things on Broadway, but I think the revivals are what rule this year. I know Passing Strange is great, and In the Heights is great, but I think the revivals have it. Uh, Miss Lupone, although sick on Sunday afternoon, as they announced before the show, and you can hear the congestion in her throat, was still great and, I might add, scary. Uh, anytime she gives one of her expressions, you know that just something is going to burst forth and you are waiting for it to happen. Uh, the Rose's turn once again gave me palpitations. What's great about this production, too, is the supporting cast. Laura Benanti in, in the title role is fantastic. Uh, Boyd Gaines has done his best work ever as Herbie. Uh, Tony Yazbek as Tulsa, great dancer, great personality. Uh, Leanne Larkin as Dainty June, fantastic. I had a ball again, and I can sit and watch it again. It is possibly the greatest version of the greatest show ever written. Well, in any case, so I had some good, I had some not so good, uh, have some hopes, hopefuls. I'll see you next time. If you have any opinions, uh, just email me at broadwaymarty at aol.com. Once again, stay on the positive side. On the boards. Triumph of Love went up on Broadway in 1997 and has been a cult favorite for a while. Uh, hasn't been produced probably as often as it should have. And so we got a great chance to bring the show to your attention as it is going up at the Astoria Arts Center end of April. And we've got two of the actors here with us to talk about the show. Abby Baum and Trip Pettigrew. How are you guys doing? Hey, We're okay. How are you? <laughs> All right. Good. It's crazy morning. So, uh... <laughs> Triumph of Love, I understand this is kind of built around a lot of French conventions. I'm guessing, you know, Moliere, is that in it? So, uh, it's based on an old Marveau comedy. Um, a lot of mistaken identities, cross-dressing, stuff like that, yeah. Oh, wow. It's great. Based on, also on Commedia dell'arte 
its influences uh, based on the two lovers who are in love with one another, who have these elders that want to keep them apart. And so the lovers have to enlist crazy servants to get them together. If only there were more shows of mistaken <laughs> identity and, and crazy <laughs> servants. <laughs> and Abby gets to play a man. Yeah, and, and which is something I always try to do. Mm-hmm. So. <laughs> so now you're just kind of new into the rehearsal process at this point. How long have you been rehearsing now? About a week. So, so what have the what have been the initial things you've discovered, kind of about the characters and the music that have been m- most drawn you to the play? A lot of what we've uh, concentrated on so far is sort of um, <clears throat> carving out who these seven different people are, so we can come all come together and create this very quirky, off kilter world that we're going to be able to tell this story in. And uh, as well as discovering a lot of the music, because what last week has been. Yeah, the music is just beautiful. It's uh, fantastic and. Filled with, you know, the Susan Birkenhead's lyrics are really smart and funny. And um, the book, based on the play, based on the play um, that uh, uh, James Magruder wrote, translated from the Morvo play, and then they turn that into the musical, it's just really quick and funny and smart. And um, these characters are just unique and beautiful and energetic. And it's really about growing up in a way. And um, personally for Ajis, it's him learning how to sort of justify. He's been taught all his life that he's supposed to be a man of reason. And he's a scholar, but he doesn't really fit in that world. And then this uh, supposed boy walks into his life and uh, starts to challenge that and then is revealed as a woman. And he realizes he's in love with her, but he doesn't know how to justify that. And, um, that was an Amanda Bynes movie, wasn't it? I'm sure it was. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you steal from the best. <laughs> but it's just really charming and fun and, and entertaining. Yeah. And I think we've got a really, really great cast. Who are some of the cast members in it? Um, we've got Richard Rice Allen playing Hermocrates, and he, of note, was in the original cast of Phantom, the Maury Easton Phantom, and um, Erica That's Amato. Not the real Phantom. Mm, well. <laughs> <laughs> Be careful there. Some people might argue with you on that. Um, Erica Amato is playing Hazione, and she is originally an L.A. actress, and she just moved to New York, and I think this is actually her first yeah. New York gig. She is notably the lead singer of uh, the band The Velvet Chain, which was featured in Buffy the Vampire Slayer, Slayer and uh, also it was featured in Sex and the City for a while, but she also was nominated for an L.A. Ovation Award for her work in Sleeping Beauty Wakes. Yeah. Um, and uh, she's just fantastic, great voice, um, clearly, in a rock band, great yeah. voice. Um, Abby is Leonid, and um, Justin Birdsong is playing our Demos, and he and Ashley Spiegel, who, was our, who is our Korean, uh, they both were just in the Gallery Players production of Wild Party, which just got rave reviews, uh, who was... Also, uh, our choreographer-director choreographed it, who was Brian Swasey, and the music director is the same, which was Jeffrey Campos, and they're doing great work as well. And uh, Philip D'Esso, who uh, is playing our Harlequin, he uh, notably starred opposite Oksana Bayul 
and the Gateway Playhouse production of On On the Ice, I think it was called, but it was an ice skating musical. Wow. And he <laughs> was the romantic that. lead with <laughs> Oksana Bayul. So grab him after the show and talk to him about that. And <laughs> any opportunity to say Oksana Bayul. I know. Fantastic, right? Twice very well said. <laughs> and all of those names right off the top of your head. Yeah, you know. Week of rehearsal. <laughs> I'm an actor. I learn lines and parts. <laughs> so before we continue, maybe we can let our um, audience hear a little bit of the the music from the thing. Let's play one of the songs from the original yeah. cast album. Um, this song was sung by uh, originally Susan Egan and uh, Christopher Siebert. Yes. Yeah. Now, do you want to set the song up in in the context of the show? Sure. This is when Agis and uh, Leonade, uh, who is disguised as a man, uh, Focion. And these are your two characters. These are our two characters. Leonid has come to the garden where Ajis studies to woo him and make him fall, mad, uh, fall madly in love with her, except uh, women aren't allowed in the garden, it being a scholarly place. So she's dressed up as a man. And this is um, their pledge to be each other's best friends. Okay, and the name of the song is? The Bond That Can't Be Broken. All right, let's take a listen. Swear you will do anything I ask. Anything. Swear. For it may be no simple task I understand Swear you'll seek him out this very day And beg Hermocrates to let me stay He is a little rich Swear you will not hesitate to plead Swear you can, you will, you must succeed Swear I will not stint in my campaign Nor rest till he agrees that you remain When friends do their affection prove As brother would for brother Doubt they thus remove and cleave to one another of all the wealth that they possess, of all the words they've spoken. There is no greater bond, I vow, no greater gift the gods endow than this the bond between them now, the bond that can't be broken, the bond that can't be What pleasure it is to call you friend. Perhaps I can unburden myself. I've never told anybody this. You must believe what I'm about to tell you. I will, Agis. I am. I am the true prince of Sparta. The what? The who? The true prince of Sparta. But there already is a princess, Princess Leonid. Princess Leonid is my mortal enemy. Her evil uncle seized the kingdom from my parents and put them to death. And then Sparta was plunged into civil war, but no one ever mentioned a missing prince. Swear! What? Swear you won't reveal my identity. Uh, I swear. Swear that you are not afraid to kill. Kill? Swear. Say yes, I promise, yes, I will. Swear you will not heed her fearful cries, but see that she, the princess, dies. Dies? Swear. The sight of blood won't make you flinch. Swear that you will never give an inch when she clutches at your sleeve and looks you in the eye, then whimpers with the pain and whispers, Why? Why? I, I swear. I swear. When friends do their affection prove as brother would for brother, all earthly doubt they thus remove and cleave to one another. Of all the wealth that they possess, of all the words they've spoken, there is 
the bond between them now, the bond that can't be broken, the bond that can't be Now, Abby, I understand you just recently graduated from the Steinhardt Music School. I did. Great. So we actually just did a you know a big interview on the program a few weeks back. Oh, I so. didn't know that. I'll definitely check that out. Yeah. Yeah, you can find out what you thought the program was supposed to be. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and uh, Trip, what what has your education been? I also went to NYU, but I did the the flip side of that coin. I went to Cap Twenty One okay, for a musical tell theater. Tell us a little bit about Cap Twenty One. Um, there's so many different little like departments in NYU. You know, yeah, like, there's two specific musical theater schools. There's the Steinhardt School, which is more a music based. Music we, we based. get a Bachelor of Music, yeah. and it's a focus on the voice. And they also take acting and dance. Mm-hmm. Whereas Cap Twenty One, it's more a focus on all three. We um, uh, the or they say it's a focus on acting, which it is. But there's also a focus on the dance and the the music. Um, I think some people can go through Steinhardt not necessarily having to do dance, but you have to do it at CAP. If, Maybe if Abby you're in the, the, um, the nice thing about our program is that we work uh, very closely with um, a, classically, uh, a classical voice program as well. So it's, you have the music theater students and the classical uh, the classically trained students working very closely together. So I think some of those, um, the opera students don't necessarily take the same jazz tap ballet classes. And then CAP is more just 100% musical theater. There's no other people. The Tisch School, CAP is through Tisch. Steinhardt is through the School of Education. Um, Tisch has eight different studios and each is an acting studio and CAP is one of the, is the acting musical theater, my degrees in drama. Um, the nice yeah. thing about NYU is that um, you know, you're walking around with so many different people. You're learning so many different things that yeah. in the end you're learning from each other all the time. So. It's so diverse. Yeah. And every teacher there has at some point done something momentous. And there's definitely not a possibility not to learn something from right. every person you meet. Without a doubt. Now, where are the two of you originally from? Um, I'm from central Virginia. And I'm from Chattanooga, Tennessee. No city, just central Virginia, just um, in the right smack in the middle. Okay, somewhere. well, you asked for it. <laughs> Abby likes um, to be elusive. I'm, I'm from Lynchburg, Virginia. Yes. Great um, name. Yeah. In the south, even. So you see why I, why I uh, Not start with Not to be confused with Lynchburg, Virginia. Tennessee. She doesn't have the Jack Daniels plan. Yeah, no Lynchburg lemonade. So how many times at the town meetings has it come up to, should we change your name? <laughs> it's actually named after um, the person who discovered the James. River, so okay. or our, not, not our the little... recreational activity, right? <laughs> <laughs> Hi, Lynchburg. <laughs> oh. That was bad. <laughs> no, but you're not the first. You see, you see now why I start with Central Virginia. <laughs> so you're both proud Southerners, yes. though. Yes, yes. Well, now a couple things to point out about this show um, is one, it's out in Queens, so. Well, for Manhattanites, it's a little bit of a venture, but it might be worth it because the show, it's reasonable on the pocketbook. Yeah. It's definitely <laughs> worth it. We're $18 and at the door, 15 in advance. Yeah. Um, I think it's really, people should really take the time. It's not that bad of a subway ride, but you're really getting the chance to see emerging 
artists who haven't necessarily made it to Broadway yet, but who are really working and are in the field. And our set designer is currently represented off-Broadway or just was in the, the play about the naked guy. And he's done a lot of work at uh, APAC, but he's really, he's got some really strong designs and great stuff going on. And our lighting designer, Eric J. Michael, he's done a lot of work at the Arizona Rep, but he's really got strong um Beautiful designs in the our nice costume. The nice thing is we're, we're a pretty young group of people that mm-hmm. are coming together to do this show that, you know, isn't often done. I mm-hmm. don't think I've It's ever... probably one of the first fully staged productions in New York City since 97. I know there was a reading a couple years ago that was a staged reading, but I don't know of any other fully staged productions. And I mean, we're fully staged. We're fully costumed. We're fully lighting designed and... Uh, a real play! Yeah. <laughs> and it's great for us to get to play. Yeah, definitely. How many times in our life are we going to get to do Triumph of Love? Yeah. I hope a million times, but probably not. <laughs> so your initial response is, why do you think Triumph of Love didn't really take off in its first time around, you know, when it went on stage, you know, in 97? Well, I think it's a bit of a misconception, because I think it was supposed to be a limited run. I mean, the there are amazing place. people in the original cast, yeah, I mean, so I definitely think you can call that a success. Yeah, and it, uh, I, I think people who saw it loved it and enjoyed it. I th- it got really mixed reviews, and I think certainly the New York Times hated it. And, or maybe that's rude. Sorry, New York Times. <laughs> but uh, I, I, it got mixed reviews, and I think it was really, it, the sh- set itself was really complicated, and there were a lot of bells and whistles and I think it would have been difficult for it to transfer monetarily for a commercial run. And I think it was only supposed to be a limited run. And I wonder, too, if the it's more of an intimate story than Broadway, a Broadway house could support. I don't Especially know. in the late 90s when Disney was taking over. Yeah. And everything was starting to be about bigger and better and more spectacular and... It's it's a well, small bigger seven and more person spectacular show. In, in any case. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I suppose <laughs> that's for you to say. <laughs> um, but I also think I think the show is uh, it's a little gem of musical theater. I think, and uh, it's just a pleasure to be part of it. Yeah. Um, yeah. Now, w- one thing I like to bring up about the show is, you know, kind of why I started Broadway Bullet was to bring to light, you know, some you know forgotten shows or shows that wouldn't get attention otherwise. Mm-hmm. And for like people out there listening in, you know, the community theaters or college or regional theaters and stuff, what about the show do you think makes it a good kind of show for those kind of groups, you know, which Astoria Art Performing Arts Center, APAC? It's you know, it's not just a pink you know thing that you swallow <laughs> and drink when you get a cold. <laughs> but, um, what are kind of your thoughts of why this is a good a good production for various other groups to possibly consider for their seasons? Well, in a learning environment, I definitely think you couldn't ask to uh, for a better script to get to create character, create a world, um, and and work sort of you know intimately with a small cast. So I think I mean as far as a learning institution would go, it's great sort of text to really uh, sink your teeth into. And um, the music is challenging, um, and then it's a great story. I mean, I, I really think that it's well written. Um, yeah. And monetarily, there's only seven actors, and set-wise, you can just have a unit set, and you're done. 
And you can have as many bells and whistles as you want, and you cannot have as many bells and whistles as you want. And I think, like Abby said, it's a really strong piece that could... It, it, when I, I saw this staged reading that I mentioned, that was a couple years ago, and it was really strong as just a staged reading. And I think it's well-written, and it can carry that way, but it could also carry as as it was on Broadway with giant hydraulic lifts and things popping out of things. And I think ours is somewhere in the middle right. of, a, of that sort of monetarily. We're an equity showcase, so we only get $20,000 to use. But it, uh, it's, uh, it, I certainly would encourage everyone around the country to do it. And I think going back to, even though it hasn't necessarily become the uh, – blockbuster that it maybe could. I do think it's been reasonably well produced around the country. And there have been, I've Googled it many times, and there's been all sorts of different productions. There's one in Denmark that popped up that happened last year, apparently. So it's a starting, it has a little bit of a regional life, but I certainly encourage a bigger, larger one. (laughs) (laughs) And and when it's a real ensemble cast, you know, where a lot of people get, where all seven members get a lot of fun Oh, without a doubt, yeah. I, we all have equal stage time. Yeah. I'm, I almost think I have the least amount of stage time in of the course, show. Of course, because you've mapped it out. <laughs> I have. I have 56 I, lines. I have 14 lines. <laughs> Abby is the star of the show. Call my agent. <laughs> what am I going to do? <laughs> um, well, before we kind of wrap up, let's take a listen to one more song from the original album. Uh, this one is called Teach Me Not to Love You. Mm-hmm. And uh, you want to set up how this song fits into the show? Yeah. The Act One finale. Um, it's you know the big the big uh, get you back after intermission song. <laughs> um, everything is sort of Leonid is um, without revealing too much is sort of um, now tied to three different people. She's told three different lies that she's having to keep up, and it's all sort of coming to a head. And she's all of them are sort of questioning um, the idea. Excuse me, of love in the song. Yeah, and as in all good farce, she has made a mess of things. Yes. And she's having to come to terms with that, and everyone else is in love with her. Which, of course. Right? <laughs> right, I mean, you, look at her. Do you know who's singing this on the original album? This is the entire cast, okay. so... Um, Betty Buckley. It's credited on iTunes as Susan Egan. Uh, yeah, it's, it's a little Susan more than Egan that. Susan Egan, the whole Egan cast. Christopher Seaver. <laughs> Betty Buckley, <laughs> F. Maury Abraham. Nancy Opal. Roger Bart and Kevin Chamberlain. All right, well, let's take a listen. Oh, jeez. It's over, it's over. Well, fine, let it die. You won't catch me pleading. You won't see me cry. All I will need is just one little lesson or two to help me forget about you. Teach me not to love you. Not to let you own my heart Show me how it's done Wanting not to love you Isn't all, but it's a start Tell me I've begun So I won't feel it If not, then tell me now How else to heal it Tell me how to leave you And 
I'll turn around and walk away Walk instead of dying by degrees But loving you is all I know How am I to let you go? Vanish like a wisp of wayward breeze If I cannot have you I don't want to have the memories Teach me not to love you To want you day and night me Show me how it's done Teach me Trying not to love you Is a cruel and constant fight Never to be one It shatters, or let it now be known that my heart matters. Tell me how to leave you, and I'll turn around and walk away. Walk before you tell me I must go. So to wrap up here uh, with the thing, we got uh, the show's opening April 25th. Yes. And it runs through? May 11th. So that's three weeks they Mm -hmm. got. And um, is there a website or anything that people can go to to find out more information about this production? I'm pretty sure it's um, www.apacny.org. A pacny! Yes. APACNewYork.org. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, APAC. It's not the best sounding acronym on its own. I guess. I guess. But it's, it's short. It sticks in your memory. And the more we say it, the more you'll remember it. And uh, they've been in their uh, nice new theater for about a year now. Is that right? I yeah. It's not a new yeah. theater. It's a donated a space, space and they do a lot with it. Yeah. They've done proof. They've done uh, the Picasso at the La, La mm, Pin Agile. Yeah, there we go. And uh, the Steve Martin one. Yeah. 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 And they've also done uh, a new brain there, and they, they just transform. It's it's a open gymnasium, and they transform it into beautiful, amazing things. Yeah. Yeah. So, what's the easiest way to get there for those Manhattanites? 
You're going to want to hop on the N train. The N or W, I believe. Mm -hmm. And then you're going to sit for a while, bring a book, (laughs) maybe (laughs) plug your iPod in to the score. You know, listen, get yourself familiar on the way out. (laughs) Bring a lunch if you want. (laughs) It's not that long. Uh, To 30th Ave, and then it's a couple blocks from the subway. You can't miss it. And since tickets are just $15 in advance, uh, where do they go to get tickets in advance? Is it that same website, or is there... Yeah, the exact same website, apacny.org. All right. So, Abby Baum and Trip Pettigrew. Thank you yeah. so much. Thank you guys for just coming down and chatting. And if about you want to learn more about us, you know, we both have websites as well that you can <laughs> well, you know, check in. out. Okay, we'll definitely have those linked on the show notes. <laughs> yeah, feel free. So, Thank right. you very much Thank for having us. Thank you so us. much. Okay. Come see the show. Top of the trades. Oh, yes, everybody's been waiting for this announcement. When can they see Harry Potter naked? Well, Daniel Radcliffe and Richard Griffiths will be making their way to Broadhurst Theater on September 5th, 2008 to begin previews for Equus. Coming from the triumphant run on the West End, the pair are bringing the award-winning production to American audiences. The show will be run for a strictly limited run of 22 weeks only, opening night being September 25th, 2008. For more information and tickets, please visit www.equustheplay.com. Casting is complete for the new Candor and Ebb musical from Beyond the Grave, based on the play by Frederick Durenmont, The Visit. The music will be playing at the Signature Theater in Arlington, Virginia. The cast includes Tony Award winner and Broadway legend Cheetah Rivera as the female lead, Claire Zakanasian, got that wrong, I'm sure, and Tony Award winner George Hearn. The Visit is presented as part of Signature's Candor and Ebb Festival, which will include The Happy Time and Kiss of the Spider Woman. For more information and tickets, please visit www.sig-online.org. Armistead Maupin's beloved Tales of the City is being musicalized for the Broadway stage by a bevy of talented people. On board for the music and lyrics, Jason Sellards and John Garden of the Scissor Sisters. And for the book, Jeff Witte, the book writer of Avenue Q. The musical is nearly finished, sources say, and there are hopes of a 2009 opening. There are no castings as of yet, but we will keep you posted about any changes. Top of the Trades is brought to you by Broadway World. Visit Broadway World for all of your theater news and community. Curtain Call. The last of the great burlesque performers, Sherry Britton, passed away on April 3, 2008, in her apartment in Manhattan. After being one of the top in her trade before Mayor LaGuardia banned the business, Britton went on to perform cross-country in many musicals and plays and was seen on Broadway in Drink to Me Only. Well, that wraps up this episode of Broadway Bullet, but tune in to the next several episodes because we got lots more Broadway content coming over the next few episodes. Uh, Tale of Two Cities was just the start. Uh, yeah, Carrie Butler is planning on stopping by, I believe, for next episode, but it might be the one after that. Uh, and we're also looking at possibly some more with uh, In the Heights and other things going on. You'll just have to tune in and and see. So anyway, thanks for hopping on board. Remember, you can catch Broadway Bullet the second and fourth Thursday of every month. Broadwaybullet.com gives you the show notes and links to everything you've been hearing about here. And, uh, you know, if you haven't for a while, we haven't gotten any reviews in iTunes for a while. So uh, if you've stuck it out to the end of the program, why don't you take two more seconds, go over to iTunes, search for Broadway Bullet, and write us a quick review. All right. Well, thanks for hopping on board. I'm your host, Michael Gilbo, and you've been listening to Broadway Bullet. Wow, this could really happen. We're starved, so shouldn't audition come up? We are so ready and raring. 
Jake Kapsky says my name and I'm in the can. Actually, the Barfay thing comes from my whole life. People just going vulture, boggler. So it didn't take much, though, when he uh, proposed. I said yes. It's fun to know that those lines will stay in the show when other actors do it in the future. The hairs went up on the back of my neck. It was a thrilling moment. things with the audience and explore them a little bit. So, a little more about our brand new theater and business arts major. I know what most theater programs are like, and I've talked to thousands of artists. All of this told me that a new style of theater major was needed. Theater majors can get a pretty good arts education just about anywhere, but most programs do very little to prepare actors, directors, playwrights, technicians, producers, etc., to manage their careers. When you go into the arts, you are your own business, and you need to manage that to strategically plan for your career to grow. If you've listened to many of these interviews, you know you need to be self-starters to create your own opportunities. I'm going to make sure you are ready for that world. You'll get a ton of opportunities as an undergraduate. Actors will act, even as freshmen. Designers will design shows right away. Playwrights will see their shows mounted. Directors will direct. Producers will handle shows from inception to execution. Outstanding guest artists will conduct workshops, and outstanding students will even work on this podcast and travel to New York with me for interview weeks. And if that isn't enough, we've got an amazing program that will pay all or part of your student loan payments, even private loans if you are earning less than $40,000 six months after graduation. That is an invaluable option that lets you pursue your passion in theater with less financial pressure. If interested, and I hope you are, go to broadwaybullet.com. I'd love to help you launch your career.